Welcome everyone to Christ City Church. Thank you for being here, whether you're in person, um, you're on Zoom or YouTube looking at us right now. Um, my name is Eric Brown. I serve as one of the elders at Christ City Church. If this is one of your first times here, uh, we welcome you. We're glad that you've joined us today. We know that it can be challenging, a little confusing, a little weird, your first time at a new church community, so we want to welcome you here. We also want to thank you for your courage um, and your presence with us today. As we mentioned earlier, we are in the season of Advent, and we're in the middle of a sermon season entitled The Women of Advent, exploring the five women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus as listed in Matthew's Gospel. Today we will learn about Ruth. Um, please stand as you're able to reverence the reading of God's word. Um, today's reading is from the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Um, the reading is a little longer, so if you need to sit down through any of it, that's fine. No judgment there, um, but we'll jump right in. Um, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Amihalek. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malab and Kilian. They were Ephrites from Bethlehem and Judea. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Amihalek, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her, husbands, her husband or her two sons. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. There, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become husband, your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud. Then Orpha kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to go back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you will stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her, so that the two women, so the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. This is the word of the Lord. 
Will you bow your heads in prayer for me as we pray for um, Lisa? Um, Lord, uh, we thank you for your word. Um, God inspired that it is in this season. We thank you first to to think about the women of Advent, um, their struggles, why they are listed in this genealogy, and what God is trying to tell us in this season. Uh, we thank you for this time to sit back and reflect in the midst of all of the bustle. Um, we ask that you uh, bless Lisa um, as she brings the word today, um, that we are inspired, that we are uh, motivated, that you stir something deep within us um, in this holiday season, that you remind us the reason that we're doing all of this, um, the reason we care. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Welcome, welcome to Christ City. My name is Lisa Rodriguez Watson. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ City Church. I'm so glad you're here today, whether you are in person or you are on a live stream. Welcome, we're glad you're here. Um, I have the privilege of pastoring alongside a really excellent pastoral team, one of whom is my husband, Matthew. Now, normally I don't get up here and talk about my husband, Matthew, who is also a pastor, but there is something special about tomorrow, and that is it is Matthew's birthday. I know, and he's not, yes, okay, yes, we can clap for him. Um, he's not here today because he's off in the woods of Texas. He'll be back later on this week, and here's what I would like for you to do. I would like to invite you to like completely inundate him with well wishes, birthday messages. You can make them as sappy as you want. You can make them as humorous as you want. I think he especially likes like an emojigram, you know what I mean? Like where you try to put a message just by the emojis. We love that in our family. We decipher them uh, around the dinner table on special holidays and birthdays. Um, so whatever you wanna do, you can find him on social media or you can email him at watson at christcitydc.org. So his birthday's tomorrow. Thank you for taking just a few minutes, if you know him, uh, to wish him a happy birthday. All right, so we're in our third week of the Advent series called The Women of Advent. We're exploring the five women who were named in the genealogy of Jesus listed in Matthew's gospel. Now, this genealogy, unlike most genealogies, actually mentions a few women. Um, Matthew, the gospel writer, included these women for a reason, and over the course of this Advent season, we hope to get to know these four mothers of Jesus so that we can have a fuller understanding of God's nature, of where Jesus came from, and of what that might mean for us. A little content warning. <laughs> we learned this after the very first week when I think I read the story of Tamar. Um, the texts in the stories contain mature themes that are sexual in nature. If at any point you need to step outside or you wanna turn off your screen, we welcome that and we just really wanna create a, a space that's safe for everybody. So, um, Matthew kicked off the series with the story of Tamar, who after losing two husbands, one of whom only used her for sexual satisfaction, realizes that the only person that can actually provide for her and who should provide for her has exactly no intention of doing that. That man is her father-in-law, Judah. 
since he's unwilling to do what is right, she takes a bold <laughs> and uh, righteous actions in the face of incredible marginalization and oppression to ensure justice and righteousness for herself and for Judah's family. Now, despite the discomfort that we may have with how she enacted justice on her behalf by dressing up as a prostitute and conceiving a son with Judah, we can't overlook the reality that Judah and the scriptures call her Tamar the just, Tamar the righteous. A widow, enemy foreigner to Israel, woman who turned a trick to restore righteousness and justice is named in the line of Jesus and is honored as righteous. Last week, Justin walked us through the story of Rahab, a prostitute in the land of Canaan, who saves her family by aiding and abetting a couple of Israelite spies who bedded down at her home when they entered the city. She's told to hand over the spies who were entering her house by the king's men who were pursuing those spies, but she doesn't. Instead, she hides them on her roof, lies to her own king, and sends the king's men from Jericho on a wild goose chase. She puts all her chips in with Israelites because she is a woman who has come to believe in the Yahweh, in, in the Yahweh God, in Yahweh the God. In Yahweh God, that's really what I meant to say. She understands the disaster that is at hand. So she extracts a promise of protection from the spies that her and her family's lives will be spared when the Israelites take the city. She believes, she has faith, and she acts accordingly. She is Rahab the faithful, a foremother to Jesus. Today we come to the story of Ruth the steadfast, a young Moabite widow who is unwavering in her love for her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, I, have, I know y'all thought that passage was really long. It was like not even a whole chapter. But I have the unenviable task of actually summarizing four whole chapters in like 20 minutes. The book of Ruth is a quintessential story, a novel in biblical literature that contains all the stories of all the elements of a really great story. It has a complex main character. It has emotion. It has uh, uh, hurdles and, and objects. There's quests. There's transformation. There's resolution. It's a beautiful, well-told story. And we can't possibly unpack the depths of richness that are contained in these four chapters. But if you're curious, you can check out our podcast because back in 2019, we actually did a whole sermon series on the book of Ruth. So um, I would encourage you to take a listen to that. Over the course of the next few minutes, we will catch a glimpse of Ruth, understand the nature of her unwavering love, and walk alongside her as she takes initiative through bold and courageous acts to restore what has been lost. We will learn from Ruth, another foremother of Jesus, about hesed, a Hebrew word that unfortunately doesn't have a good English equivalent. You have to use like five English words to understand the meaning of the word hesed. It means steadfast, loving kindness, unfailing, unending love. Ruth is a story of hesed. She is the unwavering, steadfast one. 
The story of Ruth begins with a famine in Bethlehem that creates an economic crisis. Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons set out for the land of Moab as economic immigrants. This difficult beginning takes a quick downward spiral. Elimelech dies. The two sons, Malon and Kilion, marry Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. A quick word about the Moabites. They were descendants of an incestuous encounter with Lot and his oldest daughter. The son that was conceived was named Moab. By this time in Israel's history, Moabites are actual enemies of Israel, and they do not worship Yahweh. So back to the story. Malon and Kilion marry Ruth and Orpah, the Moabites. After about 10 years, neither of the women have any children, and Malon and Kilion both die, leaving Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah as destitute widows with no men in their lives to provide protection or provision. To thicken the plot a little bit, the story takes place during the period of the judges. There was no king, um, and at the closing of the book of Judges, we read, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Wickedness was pervasive. And these women, these three women, were exceptionally vulnerable to the whims of patriarchy and all sorts of other evil. But here's one thing I love about the story of Ruth. Sitting conspicuously between patriarchal narratives of the days when the judges ruled, the tribes of Israel, and the establishment of the monarchy is the story of Ruth, an enemy foreigner, childless widow. Her story is positioned between the books of Judges and 1 Samuel. Ruth's placement in the scripture stands out to me as a testament that even though patriarchy was the system of the ancient Near East, God refused to rubber stamp it entirely he would instead interrupt and disrupt patriarchal narratives to herald the, the, the marginalized woman who embodied God's nature of steadfast love. God is in the business of, up, un, of, of upending unjust systems through the very ones who are deemed outsiders, insufficient, unworthy, and insignificant. This is the backdrop of Ruth. Here in the first five verses of the book, the scene is very grim. That's the first five verses, by the way. There is famine, migration, death, and destitution. I suppose it bears repeating here that Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah couldn't just like run out and get a job to provide for their own financial welfare. Back in those days, it was only the men who could provide for the women. So if the women didn't have a close male relative, they were relegated to a life of destitution or subsistence living at best. Now the story does begin to take a turn when Noemi, Noemi, by the way, I have a Latina friend, Noemi and Naomi. Noemi is in Spanish, Naomi is in English. So I'm probably gonna use that interchangeably. Let's just, just keep on going, okay? <laughs> Noemi, Naomi. All right, um, the story begins to take a turn when Naomi hears that God has intervened on behalf of his people and there is food again in their hometown of Bethlehem. She sets out with her daughters-in-law and then surprisingly turns to them on the road and pleads with them to leave her and go back to Moab. 
Surely she understands what it will mean for enemy foreigner widows to come into her own community. She begs them, go back, go back to your people. She knows she's past childbearing age, so she can't have another son or sons for, for Ruth and Orpah to marry so that they can secure familial stability. They're both young enough to start families again. So she urges them to stay in Moab. They're all heartbroken. Orpah and Ruth want to stay with Naomi, but she is a relentless pursuer. And finally, we come to a tender, heart-wrenching scene when, in fact, Orpah decides to head back to Moab. Imagine all the years they had spent together dreaming of raising children with one another, sharing stories of, do, of life as women do, of success and beauty and joy and pain. Imagine the days following Elimelech's death as they grieved with one another, held each other, and prayed for God's strength to endure. Imagine surviving that terrible grief only to subsequently experience the double grief of losing both of their husbands, Naomi's only two sons. A whole decade of life lived, laughed, laughter shared, prayers prayed side by side, a whole decade of life lived together, and now in this moment, all of it came to a crushing end, and Orpah says goodbye, and she heads back to Moab. Another devastating moment for Ruth and Naomi. Now thankfully, the worst of the hardship is over at this point, and what comes next changes the course of the story and even the course of history. In contrast to Orpah, Ruth clings to Naomi to make it clear that she has no intention of leaving. She declares a beautiful oath to her mother-in-law. She says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death comes between you and me. Here we catch a glimpse of Ruth's steadfast love. I think it can be really easy to hear that and be like, aw. Like that's a, that's, a, that's a reality of how we might respond to such a sweet moment. But friends, this is not sentimentality. This is hardcore commitment. She is fully aware that she's uprooting her life, leaving everything she had ever known to live as an outsider among her enemies with no promise of anything more than presence with Naomi and presence with Yahweh. Scholar Marnie Legaspi offers these insights on what she risked and what she was committing her loyalty to. Loyalty and location. She said, wherever Naomi was going, Ruth was going also. Loyalty and lodging. If Naomi was going to sleep in a cave or a stable or a home, Ruth was going to be there too. A loyalty in people. Ruth chose to forsake her own customs and culture to adopt those of Naomi's people. Loyalty in religion. 
Ruth refused to follow the pagan gods of her youth and chose instead to follow the God of Israel, Yahweh. Loyalty and death. Even after life was over, Ruth wanted to be near Naomi. She wanted to be buried next to her. Naomi, the relentless persuader, is herself persuaded that Ruth will not leave, so the two of them walk the long road of no promises to Bethlehem. Generations later, another two would walk the the long road of Bethlehem. Together with no promises of a place to stay, but instead carrying the promised one who would be born in that small town and become the great redeemer, Jesus. But how does God's unfailing love get us from two destitute widows in Bethlehem to a little brown baby born to save the world? It's in part through the steadfast love of Ruth. Very first of all, she takes initiative because that's what unfailing love does. It takes initiative. Ruth devises a plan once they're in Bethlehem to work the fields behind the barley harvesters so she can gather grain and provide food for herself and Naomi. Mosaic law prescribed care for the most vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, and the foreigners by requiring the harvesters to leave grain in the corners of the fields. This was called gleaning. Ruth qualified as a gleaner on two accounts. She was a widow and she was a foreigner. We see God's hand of involvement alongside Ruth's initiative where it says, it reads, so, this is in chapter two, verse three, by the way, in case you wanna go back later. She went out, entered a field, and began gleaning behind the harvesters. It says, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. See, Ruth is taking initiative. She's going to glean the fields, and God is guiding her all along the way. As it turned out, oh, sorry, camera. As it turned out, God had already decided that she would glean the fields of Boaz. Boaz, you see, is a relative of Naomi and can provide at the very least some protection and security for the two widows. But will Boaz actually step up and do the right thing? Let's see how the story unfolds. Ruth is working hard, gleaning the barley in the field. Boaz comes along and sees her. He asks his harvest manager, hey, who is that girl over there I've never seen before? The manager says, oh, that's the Moabite, the one who came back from Moab with uh, Naomi. Not cool how he only references her enemy foreigner status, but he follows up with some solid compliments about how hardworking she is. And then Boaz goes and introduces himself to Ruth. He encourages her to remain in his field. He lets her know that his men are told not to lay a hand on her, and he suggests she grab water anytime she's thirsty. Ruth is shocked. She falls on her face, and she says, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz's response is one that we cannot miss. It constitutes the climax of this chapter and sets up a future scene. He says, 
I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland, and you came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. This is a wonderfully generous response, right? He entreats God to richly reward Ruth for her unwavering love to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Nice. Notice, though, that he says, I've been told all about what you have done. He's already known about Ruth, and he hasn't taken the initiative. He knows he's from the clan of Elimelech. He knows that he's a guardian redeemer. He knows that he can do something to help these two women. So we'll see how it goes after that. Ruth's loyalty and love for Naomi's family then stands as a prophetic call to Boaz. Since she has demonstrated her loyalty to her husband's family, shouldn't Boaz take responsibility for his family? Shouldn't he take that responsibility seriously? The exchanges in the chapter are subtle, but it's critical to us actually seeing Ruth's character, her courage, and her resolve. Um, so we'll notice, when Ruth speaks to Boaz, she names Boaz's favor towards her. Why is it that you've taken notice of me? How has your favor come upon me, a foreigner? She names Boaz. She could have said, see, God brought me here to your field, but she named him. However, when he replies to her, he speaks about Yahweh and seemingly hands over the responsibility of Ruth's reward to God. He goes one step further and specifies that it is under God's wings that Ruth has come to take refuge. Is he wrong? Not entirely. But is he absolving himself of his responsibility? Did he ever wonder if he might be the very answer to the prayers that he is praying for Ruth? Boaz, to this point, has shown himself to be a kind and generous man. He has provided protection for Ruth and extra food for her and Naomi, but this really isn't enough. And Ruth isn't satisfied because she knows that what is needed for their ultimate and long-term security is marriage and a son who will carry on the family name. The initiative she has taken because of her steadfast love for Naomi has gained her favor with Boaz but she is going to have to ratchet up her courage and risk a scandalous proposal to see if God's wings will provide the kind of refuge that she truly needs. What happens next is everything. We find out that Boaz is a special kind of relative that's called a kinsman or a guardian redeemer. The guardian redeemer functioned as one who restored family wholeness. He acted as a kinsman or did the part of the next of kin um, when there was a widow in the family. His duties included purchasing back any property that families might have um, had to sell when they ran out of money, 
Uh, it also could have included buying back slaves who fell on hard times and then they had to sell themselves into slavery. So the kinsman redeemer would buy them back. They would rescue them from slavery and they would hold the family together. Kinsmen redeemers are different than Leviers. Now, this is, a, this is a term that we've used the last couple weeks, especially in, in Tamar's story. Remember from her story that her husband's brother, Onan, was required to marry her and sleep with her to attempt to continue the family line. That was the law. The brother was required to serve as the Leviers, called a leveret marriage. Kinsmen redeemers are not required to take on the role of the Levier. They simply restore family wholeness and preserve property and land ownership. Boaz was a kinsman redeemer. Because he's a kinsman redeemer and Naomi wants to ensure that Ruth has a way out of their poverty and vulnerability, Naomi devises a plan. Her plan is essentially to have Ruth approach Boaz and propose to him that he should marry her. Naomi instructs Ruth to put on her best dress, her finest perfume, and head to the threshing floor where Boaz will be threshing the barley, which is a process by which you like separate the stalk from the grain um, so that you can kind of throw away what you don't need and keep what you need. There's some symbolism there. I'll let you think about that. The threshing floor was a wide area, and threshing was a communal act. It was a social event. Naomi says that Boaz will be there. He'll take dinner, and once he's finished eating and drinking, he'll sleep there. She tells Ruth, once he's asleep, uncover his feet and lie next to him. He will tell you what to do. So Ruth follows Naomi's instructions, mostly. Consider Ruth's circumstances here. She is unquestionably loyal to Naomi, who she loves. She understands that Boaz, while generous and upstanding, is not taking initiative to provide for Naomi and Ruth as he should. There's a difference between being generous and being just, isn't there? The powerful have the privilege of simply being generous without the pursuit of justice. Charity is easy for those with wealth. It doesn't cost them, dare I say, it doesn't cost us anything, any privilege or any power when we are charitable. In fact, depending on where and how we give, we can improve our standing. Don't get me wrong, please <laughs> hear me. <laughs> Generosity is a mark of a follower of Jesus, and we should be absurdly generous as Jesus' followers. But if we don't put in tandem with that generosity a pursuit of justice, then we might as well expect that the vulnerable will take just about any means necessary to hold us to account. And that is precisely what Ruth does with Boaz on the threshing floor. She summons up all her courage, her worth, her dignity, and her love for Naomi, and she heads through the night to the threshing floor. There on the threshing floor, in extraordinary vulnerability and determination, Ruth goes and uncovers Boaz's feet and lays down next to him, waiting for him to wake up. 
How long did she have to wait in anticipation? Did she second guess herself all the while while she was laying there awake? Was she rehearsing possible responses to his initial reaction? Were her fists clenched tight with worry about how she'd be received? What if he rejected her? What if he shamed her? What if he took advantage of her? Was she crafting a backup plan to Boaz in case this whole night went terribly wrong? We don't know the answers to any of those questions, but we certainly can relate to how she might have felt courageously and fearfully lying there in the dark, waiting. Now, there is tremendous innuendo in this passage, but a faithful reading of the text could interpret Ruth and Boaz's actions exactly as they are read. She lays down at his feet and waits. When he wakes up, he is startled to find a woman there. Who are you? he asks. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. <laughs> this is where Ruth abandons Naomi's instructions. Boaz wakes up. Instead of waiting for him to tell her what to do, she speaks first and she makes very clear exactly what she wants. She says, spread out your garment over me, a reference back to Boaz's earlier pronouncement that God reward her mightily because she has taken refuge under his wings. She's using very similar phrasing, and in that, what she is saying is, you cover me. You cover me. God's refuge for me can come from you since you are the guardian, the kinsman, redeemer. In short, she says, will you marry me? Yeah, I think it's impossible for us to fully grasp her bold and courageous love here. She is a woman. She is a foreigner. She is poor. He is a man. He is well-known. He is a wealthy, land-owning man. The chasm couldn't be wider. And all of that means nothing to her because of her steadfast love and commitment to restoring what Naomi had lost, and to establishing a stable future for her mother-in-law. Ruth, a foreign woman, is seizing her own agency and moving the story forward, but on her own terms. She makes an appeal to Boaz's ethics. She asks Boaz to provide for her what the law simply cannot, since he's not obligated to a leveret marriage. He does not have to marry her and produce offspring with her. So she appeals to his sense of honor and his will to help a relative in need. He says yes. He says yes, everybody, yay! <laughs> her courageous initiative taking f love fueled by, by a love for Naomi, the mother-in-law, finally pays off. He honors her kindness and her character. He calms her fears. He tells her, don't be afraid. But then he lets her know, we kind of got a little problem here. There is a closer guardian redeemer who has to relinquish his rights in order for Bo Boaz to be able to marry Ruth. 
The scene finishes with the two sleeping on the threshing floor until just before the sun comes up and Ruth heads home to Naomi. Again, with a generous share of barley given by Boaz to the widows. From here, the story comes to a close. The next day, Boaz offers the nearer guardian, the nearer guardian redeemer, the opportunity to acquire Elimelech's property along with Naomi and Ruth. Mr. So-and-so, he doesn't have a name, so we'll just call him Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so says no on account of like, the fear of losing his wealth. So there's, a, you know, there's a, a group of people there at the gate. That's how they did business back then. And so, um, so Boaz tells all the people at the gate, hey, just so you know, he said no, they exchanged a shoe. That's how they did business. They exchanged a shoe, it was official. And Boaz says to the crowd, See, I have properly acquired the property of Elimelech, and I will be marrying Ruth. The people gathered, offer well wishes and blessings. Ruth and Boaz conceive a son, and Ruth is honored by the women in Bethlehem. The story of Ruth began with loss, emptiness and sorrow. Her story ends with fullness and favor. The central theme of her life was unwavering commitment to and love for Naomi. Ruth stands out for us as a paragon of God's hesed, his unmerited and steadfast loving kindness towards humanity. <clears throat> she was a fore foremother to Jesus in her courageous Initiative-taking love for Naomi, she points to what Jesus will eventually do for the whole world. When Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back to you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. Jesus says to us, come, follow me. And he promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. There's no height, nor depth, nor any creature in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. God's unwavering, steadfast, hesed love is what we celebrate on this Sunday of Advent. It's, it's what we're invited to receive, whether for the very first time or for a time innumerable, we are invited to receive the love of God because of the work of Jesus Christ. God's love is what we're compelled to bear witness to as we live and love courageously today, tomorrow, this week, this holiday season. For as long as we live, let us live in, through, and for God's perfect and steadfast love. Amen. Will you pray with me? Where would we be without your love, God? Thank you for the story of Ruth. Thank you for how she compels us to take initiative in our love. Thank you for how she compels us to be courageous, 
not just for our own gain, but for the gain of somebody else. God, I wonder who it is that you want me to love courageously, to take initiative on behalf of this week, today. God, beyond just me or anyone sitting in this room, what about Christ City? How do you want us to live courageously and boldly because of your love? Jesus, thank you for being the fulfillment of God's love for humanity. Thank you for not just being a kinsman redeemer, but being the redeemer of all of humanity. We honor you, we love you, we worship you. We surrender to you. We love you, God. And even as we take communion now, we remember the work that you have accomplished on the cross to close the chasm between us so that we could be in relationship with you. And we thank you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.